Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. And on today's edition, we have two guests, Tina Quigley, General Manager at the Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada, or the RTC of Las Vegas, and MJ Maynard, the Deputy General Manager at the RTC. Both of these ladies are high energy leaders who know how to get it done, and they're leading one of the most innovative transit systems in North America. Today, they'll tell us about their automated vehicle bus program they've got running in downtown Vegas on Fremont Street, talk about how their ridership is going and how they've become the most efficient transit system in the United States. They have all kinds of pilots going on and neat innovations like Audi cars getting traffic signals, talking to the cars. Tina Quigley believes technology is the new asphalt. We'll hear all about it on today's edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today we're in Nashville, Tennessee with Tina Quigley, the CEO and general manager of RTC, which is the transit service for Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> Great to have you with us. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. I listen to your podcast, and I, um, I always am entertained by your guests and your questions. Good. Well, we look forward to a great entertaining and informative show today. Tina is a visionary. We've been talking here for 15 That's minutes. A strong I word. I can't wait to have you tell everybody <laughs> about your vision, but um, uh, I've been out quite a few times out there to Vegas and with our friend who's also here today, MJ Maynard, who's the deputy general manager. Hello, Paul. Yeah. Here with my awesome boss. <laughs> there you go. So uh, great to have two of the leading ladies in transit on our show today. That's wonderful. Tell us about yourself a little bit, Tina, your background, how okay. you ended up as head of a big transit system Right, in because Vegas. everybody has this winding story, right? Yeah. No, no, no. None of us raised our hands in high school and said, I am going to be the head of a transit agency someday. So um, my story was I was actually going to be a pilot. I, w I raised my hand and said I wanted to be a pilot. Wow. And uh, yeah, I went to an aviation school and soon learned that, one, it was very expensive to go through the civilian path of becoming a pilot. And two, I was female, and back in the 80s, that wasn't necessarily, they, they weren't looking for quotas. Could be top gun. Exactly. <laughs> and then also I had a, I, my vision wasn't quite there, even correctable. So this was uh, before LASIK. So okay. I knew I needed to change degrees. So I became an airport planner. Airport business was my, was my degree. Uh. And I got invited to come out and do a, a summer internship at McCarran Airport where I could earn college credits and get experience. Were you from there? Did you grow no, up? Oh. No, no, okay. no. They had just come to our campus and were looking for, you know, they had a booth and I yeah. signed up and okay. I got the job. So I went out to Las Vegas for a summer and I decided a couple things. One is that I didn't want to live in Las Vegas because it was just, I didn't feel a connection or a chemistry with the city. And two, I didn't want to be a government employee. And here you are this many years uh, later. Yeah. Note to self, <laughs> forgot to read the memo. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I graduated. It was a recession year. I had two job offers. One was America West Airlines for $15,000 a year. And the other was McCarran Airport asked me to come back and offer $25,000 a year. So I thought, well, I guess at least for a while, I can live in Las Vegas and, and I can be a government employee. <laughs> so at the time, Las Vegas is by, you know, the early 80s, early 90s, Las Vegas really was this place of uh, like, optimism and opportunity. It was just booming. And the airport was reflective of that. So I got exposed to projects and experiences that I wouldn't have gotten in any other city. So I stayed, although I kept saying to myself, two more years and you're out, two more years and you're out. And then one day you wake up and you're like, yeah, I'm 
<laughs> I spent a whole career here. I live here. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm going to live here, which I decided I was going to live there, then I'm going to do everything that I can to help create a community that is a place where people want to live, that is a place that businesses want to come to. So I've been committed to that ever since. So, uh-huh. yeah, so I was at the airport for 15 years. Okay. Um, my former, my boss at the airport went to left and started running, the, became the CEO of the transit system. Uh, there, it, it's actually, the RTC is actually the transit system, the MPO, and the ITS agency, the administrators of our regional land use plan. So he asked if I'd come and be his deputy. I, I, I liked him as a boss, so I came. And when he retired, I became, I took his place. As and when CEO. was that? How long ago? That was 2012. So okay. You've been six there years? six years, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. As the CEO, as a CEO, yeah. And do you like it? Is it fun? I love it. Okay. <laughs> I do, Paul. And, I, and I, the reason that I love it is that I, I feel a very strong mission as it relates to the community. And then the other thing is that I'm surrounded like by these really amazing people, and MJ is one of them. I, I'm telling you, I the executive team that I work with, I would put up against any executive team. I, I believe like, it. I've oh, met them. I They're know. awesome. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They have such energy and commitment just high energy, really fun to work with, and not afraid of confronting brutal facts and being disruptors. Yeah, and that, I can tell you from experience, MJ, that's that. a- <laughs> <laughs> so, She's not afraid of confronting brutal facts, that's true. <laughs> yeah, can we have that? Experience? That's true. Yeah. I, personal experience. Yeah, yeah. So I've been there a while, but I, MJ, can you share your story real quick too, just because I think it's fascinating. Sure, it, it's funny, because Jacob Snow is sort of, the, 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 he's the same person that uh, brought Tina to the RTC, he also brought me to the RTC. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. I, um, I knew Jacob just in a sort of a casual way. It's what the benefits of going to the gym, you get healthy, <laughs> then you also get a chance to network potentially. Yeah. And uh, Jacob, I was at the time vice president at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino Las Vegas, came up in a hospitality degree. So making the customer happy, finding a way to make money, that was what I really did for my entire career. Long story short, Jacob recruited me to join his agency. And ah. I thought, he's crazy. Who is this guy? What is, you know, transportation? What, I was in a hospitality box. I didn't see the connection and those transferable business skills. So anyway... I took about eight months and um, I said yes. Best decision I've ever made because really it is about that customer. It's about maybe not making money, but it's only about it being efficient. Yeah, that part killed me. For my first month at the RTC, I said, can I see the financials? And I almost fell out of my chair. I said, I can't work here. They don't make money here. Right. And, and debt is considered revenue. It's, this is crazy, <laughs> yes, I crazy know. business. Yeah. But uh, I do really care. I think we all care as an agency about the customer. And uh, whether it's a customer that's spending $1,000 at a casino table or it's a customer that's using our service uh, for $2 to get to work, to me, that's even more fulfilling than the business I was in previously. So really find a lot of professional and personal satisfaction in what I'm doing. That's great. Yeah. yeah, very good. And I think having that business background, as well as the efficiency of the aviation industry, mm-hmm. having you two with those two backgrounds combined is probably what makes Vegas, I think, one of the best transit systems in America. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, seriously. Well, I learn a lot from MJ and the rest of the team as well. I think that we, uh, we each are a piece of the overall puzzle and just really lucky to to have that chemistry that we have, right? So tell us about your agency itself. You were okay. talking about the unique characteristics <clears throat> sure. that you're an MPO. I mean, who else is doing this where you're doing it all? I mean, I think LA is, but you have, you have so many cool things about how you're organized. So explain your organization sure. to so us. So first of all, I'll explain that we, we are 
a regional agency, of course, so we're for all of Southern Nevada, which is the Las Vegas Valley. And How many people live there, would you say? About 2.2 million. Okay. Yeah. So we are the transit agency, and there's only one transit, so there's only one public transit system in, in all of the region. We are the MPO, the Metropolitan Planning Organization, and we're the ITS agency. So anything having to do with technology and managing traffic, so whether it's traffic signals or those dynamic message signs that tell you how many more minutes until your next exit, cameras, et cetera, it's all under one umbrella. And then we're also the administrators of our regional plan, which is called Southern Nevada Strong, which ties land use planning and, and community planning in with, with transit and transportation. So I feel this really strong you know, obligation or responsibility to make sure that since we have all of those under one umbrella, that we are leveraging them to the extent that we can leverage them to move projects forward. So, you know, in some communities you might have to, if you were to move a, a BRT project forward where you have to include planning, land use planning and um, transit agency and ITS, et cetera, you know, you didn't need to have interlocal agreements and lots of attorneys. We don't have to do that. We can sit down at our weekly staff meeting and say, okay, who's got what? And let's move this forward. So the challenge is really figuring out how you do leverage that, right? How do I take, how do I get off this hat of thinking of these, all these things as being separate silos and really figuring out how do we maximize this governance structure that we've got. And as technology is coming in and just, you know, coming into our world in all of those, transit, planning, ITS, there's a lot of opportunity there to figure out how data collection, infrastructure management, using buses as sensors we talked about. How do we start to to move forward in these, you know, the, kind of this uncharted territory as it relates to, to transportation management. That's good. How are you funded? We have sales tax. We have a half-cent sales tax. We've got motor vehicle fuel tax for our, our roadway infrastructure. Yeah, I, I should have mentioned we're also the roadway planning and funding agency as yeah. well. So we tie motor vehicle fuel tax to inflation. We've been doing that since 2013. So it's a pretty solid right now. It's what some people are saying the Fed should do. Yeah, right, yeah. Right now, it's a solid source of revenue for us, but of course, I worry very much about the fact that is not a sustainable source moving forward. Right. That you know, electrification and efficiency of vehicles is going to force that to, uh, that will dwindle in, and that's going to be an issue that we are all going to have to start to talk about someday. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to confront that brutal fact. So sales tax, motor vehicle fuel tax, of course, grant money, and then fare box. Those are our primary sources of revenue. Do you know what your fare box recovery ratio is? Oh, what are we at right now, MJ? About 50... <laughs> We're at, yeah, about 50%. 50%. 50%. That's, you know, we have the, the resort corridor. And it, so pre-TNC, our fare box recovery uh, percentage was 163%. I remember that. You yeah. were like the only one in America yeah. making money. Yeah. <laughs> and even with, the, even with, we've had quite a, uh, an impact to our revenue and ridership in the Strip, uh, even with that said, we're at about 132% right now, fare box recovery. So that helps um, drive up the overall uh, fare box recovery for the entire system. Of course, I love to tell our, our constituents and our elected officials that you know, by the FTA's ranking, the NTD statistics, we are the most efficient system in the United States. And wow. Of course, yeah, we always rank number one. And the reason being is that, one, we, we contract out. So there's a lot of efficiencies associated with that. We use uh, MV, Keolis, and Transdev. And, and how much of the work do they do? <clears throat> 100%. Yeah, 100% we contract out. The other is we don't sprawl the system just because we've got a new neighborhood that's opened up way in the northwest or in the southeast. We won't bring out a, a route unless we know we've got at least 20 passengers per service hour, and our planners are based on, on rooftops and employ, um, employment density. And then, of course, the other is that we have the strip and the, the density and the efficiencies of that route 
bring our numbers up significantly. Who runs that rail thing around behind the hotel? Oh, the monorail. That's yeah. private sector. Okay. Yeah, that's privately funded. It has its own board, its own, its own debt. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So how are you governed about your like your board of directors kind of a thing? How sure. It, they're all elected officials. They sit on either city council or county commission. By statute, we have two from the county commission, two from the largest city, which is city of Las Vegas, and then one from each of the other cities, which is city of Henderson, city of Mesquite, city of North Las Vegas, and city of Boulder City. And I got to tell you, again, good chemistry. Love the board. You know, sometimes a board's effectiveness can really stymie an agency or really accelerate it. And right now we've got a board that gives us a lot of deference, believes in what we're trying to do. And as a result, we, we, we are able to actually get stuff done. And it sounds like they're the decision makers in the community because they're the elected officials. Yes, yeah. If you have appointees who don't have any political power uh, and they have to go back and then talk to the politicians who really have the power, right. sometimes that's a step removed and it makes it difficult. You have to take three meetings to get anything done because they have to communicate back. Then they have to have a sure. meeting there. And then they, right. Yeah, so. Or you can have board members who get very jurisdictional or very territorial about about oh, their right. areas, you know, yes. I, you know, what are you doing for me? What are you doing for me? As opposed to what are we doing for the region? And you don't have that? I don't. That's I great. don't right now. Now knock on wood because boards change, right? right? You know, and next How many year members? Can, uh, we have a total of eight. Yeah, okay. eight members. Yeah. So I'm very blessed and working hard to take advantage of that as long as we've got it. <laughs> yeah. A little bit more on the nuts and bolts. Sure. Uh, maybe how many vehicles, you know, how many passengers, that kind sure. of stuff. Yeah. So we have about 400 and... Uh, 404 fixed yeah. vehicles. We're converting our entire fleet to... Yeah, I went and saw your CNG yeah. plant last yeah. time I was there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and just under 400 paratransit vehicles, and those are all uh, CNG. And about how many passengers a day, MJ? Well, paratransit, about 5,000 trips a day. Okay. Uh, about 120, 130,000 fixed route. Last year, or fiscal 18, it was about 65 million, a um, little and, under that. And you have a lot of people ride on the Las Vegas Strip, right? Is that what you're saying? We do. Yeah. We, again, we've seen a about a ton, we've seen about a 10, about not, yeah, well, it, the last, from fiscal 17 to 18, we saw about a 10% decrease in ridership and about an almost 12% decrease in revenue. It's still about over 30,000 trips yeah. per day in the resort corridor. That's great. Well, let's talk about that. Tina, tell us about um, ridership. Let's sure. talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about it because I think the industry as a whole, maybe we're not talking about it. And yet, you know, I think we are- it's the elephant in the room. Yeah, <laughs> I think, and I, and you know, maybe we're guilty of it as well a little bit in that we keep wanting to see, well, where's this going to plateau in terms of this ridership drop? And we've been following it ever since the TNCs came into Las Vegas. And I can tell you, it's, it's not plateauing. So if that's the case, internally, we need to start having, and probably- industry-wide, we need to start having some, you know, confront the brutal fact type conversations about if this isn't plateauing, if this is a trend, if this is what consumers are wanting as opposed to public transit, what are we going to do about it? Because we can't just keep doing what we've been doing. And yet I don't see a lot of conversations going on. Um, I'm not feeling a lot of conversations going on related to really analyzing this and figuring out what, what the future holds. What are you doing in Vegas? So right now, I mean, monitoring our monitoring, we are trying to enter into partnerships. We've already entered into a partnership with Lyft. But what are we doing? MJ, what are we doing? We're following the numbers. We are having conversations with our elected officials. We are st structuring our routes, taking doing route evaluation. I think we're doing what everybody else is doing. It, it is, it's looking at your data. We do customer surveys twice a year. Uh, just to, to continue to stay, to understand a finger on the pulse of what the customers want. And it's really going to be more about demand 
on-demand right. type service. I don't think a lot of people want to stand at a bus stop anymore when they can, from their home, use their phone to get a quick trip to where they want to go. So, Tina, we have a lift with, uh, we have, excuse me, we have a pilot with lift for our paratransit service. We're getting ready to enter into another first mile, last mile pilot with Lyft for an employer in the Northwest Fanatics. And it's great because they are going to pay for it. They're going to subsidize the cost. We're going to subsidize a very small piece of that. But they understand the need for that. Get that their employees uh, for that last bus stop to, to their front door. And we're in conversation with both VIA and Transloc to potentially look at microtransit. And again, it's, it's looking for an opportunity to meet the desires of the customers. And that's moving on demand when they want to go and where they want to go and get them there. That's great. A lot of cities now, you have very efficient bus routes. A lot of cities don't. A lot of these traditional cities, like where I came from, Baltimore, or yesterday I was talking with uh, Tom Lambert, the CEO of Houston. He kind of led the effort. They're saying, you know what? One way we can make our system really serve what the public wants is put the routes where people want to go today mm -hmm. and not where, you know, three-fourths of the routes were all going into the central business district of a city. That's not where all the jobs are anymore, that kind of... But you already have pretty efficient routes, so that may not be an option for you, or...? Well, we try. You know, once you have a route, it's very hard to scale it oh, back absolutely. without offering yeah. some type of alternative. Right, so, right. Our, you know, our approach has really been to not introduce a route unless we know that we've got that efficiency. We have been adding frequency to certain routes where we know that we've got the that's demand for it, yeah, yeah. and that's helped keep our ridership numbers flat as opposed to our overall ridership flat um, yeah. numbers flat, for including our, our residential routes. But just adding service is probably not the smartest way to continue to, to sustain your ridership. Yeah. So let's step back a minute just to, and, and I'm interested because not a lot of transit agencies outsource all their fixed route service. Mm -hmm. How does that work for you? Do you I like that? I love it. Yeah? I gotta tell you, I absolutely love it because I learn so much from them. Working with a Keolis and MV, a TransDev, these are firms that work internationally and so they've got the, not only economies of scale and lessons learned, but they're really moving forward. They know best practices around the world, I should say that. And they're moving forward in, in, in technology and they've got so much to share with us that I feel like I am a better CEO than I would ever be without having these partners. That's good. It's an interesting perspective. That's how I feel. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now you're traveling all over the world, being invited everywhere to speak. <sighs> Tell us your just general thoughts. You and I were talking about sure. what's the role of you know automated vehicle right. technology. Where's things going? So what are you seeing? I do. I follow the industry. I'm, I'm constantly reading, constantly talking to people outside of my bubble to the extent that I can because I figure that's the best way to learn. You've got to get outside of your your bubble and your region. And I'm realizing we have you know we in the industry we're talking a lot about autonomous vehicles and um, the moving forward with uh, autonomous transit, and and that's something I think that we, we need to do, but there are so many other types of disruptive technologies or, or enhancing technologies that we should be paying attention to as well that will allow us to operate more efficiently. I think real AV, autonomous vehicle or driverless transit vehicles are very far away, except in, in dedicated lanes where we've built the infrastructure in order to, be accom to accommodate them. But with our existing fleets, we can do a lot more to create efficiencies, and at least with my agency, because we're also the, the the infrastructure agency as well, start to use the vehicles as sensors so that they can give us feedback as to where infrastructure is working, where it's not working, maybe where we're having pedestrian near misses. You know, we know where fatalities occur. We don't always know where near misses occur, and yet that's a that's a big liability. Using or where construction work zones. Sometimes there are unauthorized construction work zones, or there are work zones going on where there are no workers for. If I could use the vehicle, we could use the vehicle as a way of being a sensor, reporting back to us 
how the infrastructure is working, and then having the, the, the analytics so that we can distill it and create it into to usable data and reports. Wow, all of a sudden, we've created not only a transit agent, a transit system that's gonna be more efficient, but an overall infrastructure system that's gonna be more efficient. And there are all types of different technologies that are, that are out there right now that I feel like we should be paying an equal amount of attention to other than just autonomous vehicles. Well, tell us about that. I mean, you've got some cool stuff that I haven't seen anywhere else where you have countdowns. Oh, yeah, Tell yeah. us about all that, how that so works. That, yeah. that, that, that's kind of fun. So we yeah. did, um, Audi was the first one to introduce it in Las Vegas, but any other OEM out there is welcome to come to Las <laughs> Vegas as well. And that is where um, our traffic signals can talk to cars, where if, and if you buy a newer model Audi, you can subscribe to something called Prime, Audi Prime. And as part of that package, the driver will have an indicator on their dashboard that tells them how many more seconds until the light is going to turn green. Where's it at on the dashboard? That's right next to the speedometer. Okay, all right. So it's now, like saying 10, 9, Yeah, eight. yep. Tell you, it's so like, what, do they rev up like a, uh, like a race car <laughs> and then they take off? <laughs> well, and actually, I kind of hope that. So how many times? So here's what I love about it is that it tells you Okay, so let's say you have 90 seconds before the light's going to turn green. Now, yeah. 90 seconds is a long time. You're not happy about it. But that tells you mentally, okay, I can pick up the baby's bottle off the floor or I can eat my sandwich or, you know, maybe I'm going to text. But then it alerts you four seconds before it turns green. Beep. So you put your phone down. So, yeah. Now, you know, <laughs> not head that you're really in doing the game. <laughs> now, yeah. And that doesn't mean I'm going to going to drag race right out of there. But right. my head's in the game. Right. So that way I know it's turning green. So when I, it's time for me to go, I go. Because how many times have you been behind a car, or maybe you're guilty of it, where the lights turn green and there's some lag time there? Yes. Now, every second of lag time is lost capacity out of that green cycle. So... So it's just a little baby step towards connecting cars and making us smarter drivers. But, man, if everybody had that technology in their car, immediately there's a capacity enhancement without having even put a dollar into the actual infrastructure itself. So there's all types of things out there that I really want to push forward that will advance infrastructure and capacity and efficiency. And it, they're not necessarily autonomous vehicles. Yeah. What, what else? Do you have, is there any other kind of cool technology you're seeing? Oh, you just went to Poland, you told me. Yeah. And... So, well, here's another one that we, we partnered with a small Israeli company. It was a startup, and now they've, they've grown. I'm sure they will not be a startup, small startup for, for long. And it's called Waycare. And they came to us saying, we, we think we've, we've got this technology that can predict where the next accident or incident might occur along the interstate, a, a, trial, a, a demonstration area. So they came to our traffic management center, worked with our traffic management operators for a while, sat next to them, watched traffic management. I've been there, by the way. You've got oh, yeah. a phenomenal facility. Yeah. Isn't that neat? Yeah. It's fully integrated. So it's the entire valley. We have yeah, one traffic management center. Okay. Roll into that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, actually, one of the reasons Audi chose to deploy their countdown to green technology in Las Vegas first is because it is. We are a truly regional traffic management center. If they'd gone to L.A., there are 133 traffic management centers in L.A. Oh, my god! So that means they're going to have to, you know, and they will deploy in L.A. Yeah. and other, uh, other areas. But it makes it much more difficult. You've got to integrate with the 133 different traffic management centers. So, yeah, we are a complete region. All the traffic uh, signalization, uh, all the, the communication is, in, is networked in one, one house. So it makes and it super simple. A lot of police officers there. Yeah. Fire and emergency. That's right. You guys. All these screens up. It looks like we're on Star Trek. You yeah. Know? yeah. Or uh, the, the Italian job. There was a movie with Ed Norton years ago called uh, The Italian Job that. where he hijacked the L.A. Traffic Management Center, right? And, and so, yeah, our, our setup physically looks very similar to that where you've got the guys at the PCs looking up at the cameras and they can actually manage the traffic signals. So what is the Israeli company okay, doing? So there they, uh, yeah, so they perfected their their algorithm to the point they use historical data, so things like you know, meteorological and current conditions, meteorological time of day, season. They'll also take into account like what 
convention is in town because we have different oh, wow. yeah. driver yeah. patterns and activities based on that type of thing. Um, Consumer electronics show, the whole town shuts it, down, right? Right. Yeah. So all, all these things are, are put into an algorithm and they can kind of predict where the next accident or incident is going to occur. And so then we can, um, we will send messages out to the highway patrol or our police department to give them a heads up or even tow truck companies so they kind of know. We've been able to clear accidents as a result 12 minutes faster than wow. we previously, and and that's, that's a big, big deal. Twelve yeah. minutes because you know what? Oh, primary accidents cause secondary accidents, and then tertiary accidents. Mm-hmm. So the faster you can clear up that primary accident, you've reduced you know the, your overall incident level significantly. So really proud of that particular one. So Waycare is the name of the company. Though will be their Keolis, who's one of our vendors, is is thinking about partnering with them as well, figure out how can we leverage that technology with our transit system so that we, again, our sensors in the field and are collecting this data, aggregating this data, distilling this data so that we can manage all of our stuff better. Yeah, that's awesome. In your role as general manager and CEO there, mm-hmm. what's your day-to-day like? I mean, you, you're the head of an MPO, you're right. the head of a transit agency, you do traffic planning and road planning. Tell us a little about your day-to-day life. So my day-to-day life really is is meeting with the team to f- kind of get the state of the state in terms of the operation of the agency. But I'm the outward-facing person. I think um, those of us who are in, in these types of roles, it's really important that we are connecting with the community constantly to share with them the state of the state, what, what, what we are up to, and to figure out what it is that they need from us in terms of partners. And that requires me to some extent to also get out again, like I said, out of my bubble and go and meet with different regions, different cities, different industries, so that I can bring back, so I can be a representative of what, what's going on in Las Vegas and bring back to Las Vegas what's going on in the world. It's a luxury to be able to do that, to not have to be in the actual day-to-day operations, because again, I'm surrounded by all these people who just are awesome at, at like MJ and, and Dr. Ohini and um, Angela Castro, um, David Swallow on our team who, who, who are in the field constantly taking care of. And what's next for your system? I mean, I know Vegas sure. has a new football team coming. I know. How about that? Are you integrated with them to try to make sure you have transit coming? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Tell us a little about what's coming They've next been, for you guys. So, yeah, we've got, we have a huge convention center expansion going on and upgrade, which we're excited about. That, that construction will be going on at the same time that this huge Raider Stadium project will be going on. And we are partnered with both of those large and, and, and the resort core. We meet regularly with the resort corridor to talk about what's going on and what do we need to be doing and what does the future of transportation look like along the Las Vegas Boulevard, which is a very, can be a very sensitive subject. Yeah. You know, it's their addresses, it's their, it, it's their front door, it's their customers. So we want to make sure that we are um, an asset to them and providing the service that, we, that they want. And as a t- you were talking about the technologies that are happening, what do you see like in the next two to five, like we didn't really talk okay. about this, but you're running the first and the biggest AV pilot program mm-hmm. in America for buses. I just wrote it. It's amazing, by the way. Oh, yeah. On Fremont Street. Yeah. yeah, right. So isn't that interesting that, so we talk a lot about autonomous vehicles, and, and Paul, I don't know how, how you felt when you're out there, but um, it's clear to me when you do get the opportunity to ride one of these live systems in mixed traffic, real-life right. environment, we're still a ways away from real deployment, right? We still, right now that system just makes right-hand turns. It's just a, it's a 0.6 miles, so say a half-mile loop. It operates but speeds between 8 and 12 miles an hour, so very slow. And it's good to have these real-life deployments to, as reminders as to where we really are in terms mm-hmm. of deployment. We know the technology is going to be there, but it's going to be a series of baby steps in actual real deployment in mixed traffic. The other thing I have to point out is I, I just noticed 
you know, it's been like just over the past four months where I'll see these studies that come out, like AAA did a study, Cox Automotive did a study, Gallup did a study where they ask general public, they'll survey the public, how do you feel about autonomous vehicles? And the numbers are coming back where like 70 to 80 percent of, of the respondents say, I will never get in a self-driving vehicle. Okay, that's a big deal. That means we have a long ways to go in terms of public adoption and trust of this technology. So Again, it's going to be a series of baby steps, which is why it is important to have these small demonstration projects. I, I really believe in those, and I hope and I know more cities will be deploying these types of demonstrations. And we get to learn from each other as they're deployed. Right. You can t- put these in a you know a protected course or you know a, a closed yeah, like at a environment. Or yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. But it isn't until it's actually out there that you really understand how it interacts and how people interact with it. So, what is next then? Um, so next, we will continue to uh, I, I, we will continue to figure out to bring to and partner. The RTC will continue to partner with technologies that offer potential to be capacity enhancers. I always say technology is the new asphalt. Okay, that by investing, good. possibly investing in technology, is going to be more efficient than continuing to build vehicle lane miles. It's very expensive to build vehicle lane miles. A lot of times it involves right-of-way, it involves takings, it involves environmental process. If we can get more out of the existing infrastructure, that's, to me, a much smarter, wiser business move than just continuing to expand lanes. You guys are really risk-takers. A lot of transit agencies aren't, but you're trying all kinds of new things and seeing what works, right? Again, I think our governance structure allows us to do that, and I think also our leadership kind of expects it out of us a a bit. I, I... I think they want to see us continue to push. Now, an advantage we also have is we do have the Consumer Electronics Show in town every year. And so that's a big convening of some of the greatest innovators and and technologies. And so we get the—and they want to test and deploy their technologies on our streets. So we get the opportunity to partner with them, to learn from them, and hopefully— get them to stay year-round. And, and Aptiv is a great story. Aptiv used to come in every year. They'd set up their DSRC's uh, technology for showing off their, their autonomous vehicles. And finally, they said, you know, instead of, instead of packing up and going home, we're just going to create a headquarters here for the autonomous vehicle tests. And they actually are partner with Lyft. I don't know if you know this, but maybe you do. So in Las Vegas, if you summon a Lyft for a certain corridor in certain routes, it'll ask you, would you be amenable to self-driving vehicle? And if you say yes, there's a chance you might have, they have 30 vehicles that are operating along the corridor, you might get an autonomous, a self-driving vehicle. Now there is a driver and a steering wheel because for regulatory purposes, you have to have that. But you may get an autonomous vehicle that is programmed to take you from your, your origin to your destination. And Vegas is growing fast. I just read an article that the House prices are growing faster in Vegas. You're like number one now in the country. Oh, are we number one? Oh, yeah, no. That, I, I, I almost Seattle don't like, like hearing yeah. that. I thought Austin was number one. I yeah. almost don't like hearing that because we've been through that period of extreme accelerated growth, and that is tough to manage. I always say that we were successful in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves, as it related to, to urban land use and growth. I really... I think a nice 
tempered pace is much more <laughs> responsible for, for community development. Fast pace is tough to manage. Yes. Really tough. Yeah. It's tough for elected officials. It's tough for land use and zoning professionals. That's great. Let me ask MJ one sure. more question, too. You're running kind of the day-to-day operations, almost like the COO, so to speak. Right, your deputy. exactly. What's next for you on the day-to-day of your service? What's happening next in Vegas? I don't want to, when we talk about, you said, you know, we're risk takers. It's, it's more calculated. I, I don't think we want to look at a shiny object and just run after it. Yeah. So we are taking very deliberate steps to understand how to enhance the customer experience while becoming fiscally constrained. And, and that certainly relates to paratransit. Yeah. So this pilot is, is more than just a pilot. We want to make this part of a, a permanent program because it does enhance the customer experience, because there's some equity then for everybody in the community. But really, we need to save money. Times are, you know, transit agencies are, are struggling there. So, so we're looking at ways, so microtransit, it's got to make sense. The cost for passengers is much higher than your regular fixed route system. So it's finding that balance between introducing a potential pilot that a customer may, may want, something that's on demand, versus does it make sense from an economic perspective overall? So what goal am I hitting there? Am I spending more money? Because the customer wants to be able to hail a trip through their phone, maybe that's not the right thing to do. But we, we, we need to test this in the Valley. So we're going to take some calculated risks to understand what the customer expects from us as a transit agency. Because again, I don't think it's about standing at a bus stop, waiting to, to take a trip where it doesn't even exactly take you where you need to go anyway. Right. Right. So, and we'll continue. We've got great planners. We've got a nice grid system. Really, it's about frequency. And, we, and, and as Tina said, we don't sprawl the system. In the outer edges of our, of our system, that's where we're looking to do first mile, last mile, mm-hmm. possibly microtransit where there's less density. It's fun. It, this is a fun time to be in transportation. We're bringing up paratransit. I, I want to point out something. I know everybody... I don't know that we talk about this much, but uh, but we we know that it exists, and that is the fact that in Las Vegas, thirty percent of our operational budget goes to paratransit, and yet only two percent of our ridership is paratransit. So, to me, that as we talk about ridership decrease and revenue decrease, and concerns for the health of transit, I think that's one area we. That's low-hanging fruit. That is an area where we need to be exploring how do we create some efficiencies out of that market. And MJ and her team have done a good job. Our our partnership with Lyft is a pilot program, but it's saving us 50% um, of the costs of operating paratransit. So certainly something that we want to explore. Again, that is low-hanging fruit. Yep. Yeah, well, it's, it's been great talking to you today, Thank Tina you. and MJ. I think you said it best. Technology is the new asphalt. I think I'm going to call this episode that. Okay. Because, uh, <laughs> because uh, that, like you said, that's an area in the technology realm. You guys are trying all kinds of different things. They are calculated. Yeah. It's not just throwing everything against the wall. You're very data-driven, but you're willing to try new things. Mm-hmm. That's probably why you're the most efficient transit system in America. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Paul. Yeah, thanks so much. We look forward to seeing, I want to hear you speak at conferences. Uh, <laughs> and, and the vision that you're casting for our industry, I think is one that we all need to listen to. Well, thanks. And I love your podcast. I love that you do this. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged, where we've taken a look into the future of what's coming to your transit system at home. We've had two guests today. Thanks for being with us, both of you, Tina Quigley and MJ Maynard, who are leading the effort for transit and transportation in general in the Las Vegas area. Staying with us next time. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.